0: Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I am joined by the man from whom I stole the title of this podcast. (laughs) Matt Ridley is a journalist and science writer whose books include The Red Queen, The Origins of Virtue, The Rational Optimist, The Evolution of Everything, Viral, The Search for the Origins of COVID-19, and the book we are discussing today, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. I'm delighted to be here. I don't think that I've yet on this podcast talked in detail about the title. One guest mentioned it and suspected the the origins of it. And it's also the same guest who um, I usually ask towards the end of an interview if you have a recommendation for a book that would complement uh, whatever I'm speaking with you about. And he recommended How Innovation Works, which I had already read and was a big fan of. Right. But that- That was James Otteson and his book, uh, Seven Deadly Economic Sins. Okay.
1: Uh, I don't think I know the book. I must look it up.
0: Lovely book. Uh, It it feels to me like a modern spiritual successor to economics in one lesson.
1: Oh, yes. And by the way, you know, the genesis of that phrase, when ideas have sex, um, it's conceivable. I stole it from someone else. I, I, one often finds that's the case. And Did you innovate forgotten. it? But I, <laughs> but I think I innovated it in the book. And it was because I was spotting the parallels between genetic recombination through sexual reproduction in biological evolution and um, the same concept of recombinant ideas in innovation. So uh, in a sense I mean it's extraordinarily literally you know sexual reproduction is to biological
0: evolution what the exchange of ideas is to human innovation so that instead of having to you know reproduce reproduce your ideas all on your own and and keep coming up with new ideas you get to combine them with other people's ideas and I think you know in in your in your famous TED talk where you I don't know if that's the first time you used the phrase um, I think so in public. Yeah. You, you're mostly talking about, I don't know if you're mostly talking about technological progress. It's, it's, uh, I, I took the term more broadly so that it could apply to just like intellectual conversations and and any ideas. Um, also I just thought it was a catchy title. Exactly.
1: And I was rather flattered by Ted, um, at their next Ted global meeting, they were handing out buttons that you could put on your jacket. And one of them was have Your Ideas Had Sex Yet? <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think actually the Rational Optimist German edition is titled Wenn Ideen Sex Abend. So, oh, really? You know, they decided to go with that as a title.
0: So when, uh, when the books are translated, do the foreign language speaking publishers decide on the titles typically?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't remember being asked about that, but maybe I was. Probably I signed a contract in which I agreed to it. But um, yeah, no, they, they must have decided on that themselves. It was a close second. For which title I should use for The Rational Optimist. Actually, we had a meeting. I had a meeting with a, a bunch of friends, advisors, and colleagues um, when, when I'd written The Rational Optimist, and I sent a chapter to each of them to, to read and then critique. We added Napa Valley, funnily enough, um, in 2009. And I wrote a whole bunch of potential titles for the book on a whiteboard. And those were the two When Ideas Have Sex or The Rational Optimist that, that sort of came out top. And uh, I don't remember why, you know maybe it would have sold more copies if I'd put, had the word sex" in the
0: title. It sold pretty well, didn't it? It did. It sold very well, but it might have sold even better. How, how did you How did you come to be an independent scholar and, and writer?
1: It's a very good question. And the answer is I don't know. Like most things, the path dependence of, of one's trajectory is interesting. I mean, I was a, a journalist, I was on The Economist, you know, writing, as it were, thoughtful essays rather than just immediate news reporting for a long time. And then I was in the unusual situation of inheriting some rural property in the north of England. Wanted to move there and bring up my children there and persuaded my wife to get a job as a professor at the local university. So I was moving out of metropolitan life and trying to become a writer, a freelance writer. Uh, And I was very lucky that some of my books caught on and some of my uh, uh, columns caught on and so on uh i'm not sure one could do it now i don't know you know
0: it's a different world of course today but i'd probably have started a podcast if i'd done it now oh that's flattering uh what makes you think you couldn't have done it now is something about like specific credentialing um i just think that that it's
1: today it's like drinking from a fire hose getting heard is much harder um You know, the fact that I'd been a, a journalist on The Economist was enough to get me taken seriously by literary agents and publishers for my first book. My first book was not a success. My second book was, you know, it just, I don't know, I, I may be wrong, but it's also immediate uh, these days that uh, the space and also, you know, the, I spent days in libraries when I was first writing books. I haven't set foot in a library for years now. You know, it was just a different world is all I'm
0: saying. I I,
1: I hope that it's possible still for people to become public intellectuals and writers today.
0: Yeah. And well, I'm sure, you know, young people are mentally more optimized to the things they might need to do to achieve that today as you were in a different time.
1: Yeah. In some ways it might be easier. And, you know, in some ways there's there's more outlets, there's more ways of persuading the world to listen to you. Than the, you know the the mainstream media was and the mainstream publishers were the only way to go in the in
0: the 1980s 1990s when I was doing it. So the book we're talking about today, how innovation works. Just for starters, why this topic? Why write a book about innovation? Well, in the Rational Optimist and the Evolution of Everything, I was writing about innovation,
1: but in a sideways way. I was writing about its contribution to progress in Rational Optimist and I was writing about how it's an evolutionary phenomenon in the evolution of everything. And I realized after I finished that book that actually I'd never really sort of sat down and written a book about innovation itself, what it is, why it happens to human beings and not to rabbits or rocks, uh, all those kind of things. And I wasn't sure there was a good book out there, and I knew I had a few ideas. Uh, so I just thought, it, it you know, it's, it's the big event of human history of the last 200 years is innovation. I can't think of anything that's as important when you think about it uh, as innovation over the last 200 years. And yet, I don't feel that anyone really knows how to turn it on or turn it off, why it happens when and where it does, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I wanted to have a stab at just taking the subject on its own, not as a sort of uh, side dish to the main dish, which is what
0: I'd done before. And it's written in a really fun and digestible way because so, mu- so much of it is stories, is uh, yeah. really entertaining narratives about little pieces of technological innovation and and how they work. And, and a lot of them are just fun standalone essays.
1: What, what I thought I would do is just tell as many stories about innovation as I could in lots of different fields. Tell them in as fun a way as I could and then sit back and say what, what common themes are emerging from these stories, rather than the other way around. Rather than going in and saying, look, here's my hypothesis about how innovation works. I'm going to tell a story to illustrate it. I was going to do the opposite, tell the stories first, and then see what, what themes emerged.
0: That's sort of the order and the experience you get from reading the book. I imagine you already came to the book with some pretty strong ideas about explanations and, and more foundational claims about it, or, or was that something you Discovered and learned as you were putting these stories together and doing your research.
1: Luckily, the,
0: the stories did tend to
1: confirm my guesses, but but they also threw up some some things I hadn't expected, perhaps. But yes, I mean, I already knew that I thought the exchange of ideas among people was an important part of innovation. I already knew that there was an element of serendipity in innovation, but there were phenomena like. Simultaneous invention, the fact that people invent the same things in different parts of the world at the same time, very often, I mean, way too frequently to be um, chance, as it were, you know, 21 different people invented the light bulb independently, um, because it was ripe, because it was ready to go. And even greater number of people invented the search engine in the early 1990s, because the internet was uh, in need of a way of searching it, um, and so on. So... That phenomenon I hadn't thought about came to me new and and how to explain it. And then the other thing that I hadn't quite twigged until I started telling these stories was just how predictable innovation looks if you look backwards because of this phenomenon of simultaneous invention. You know, it's pretty obvious we're going to invent search machines in the early 1990s. It's even obvious that they're going to be very lucrative, as Google proved. But it's not at all obvious looking forward. I couldn't find people. I went to look for people in the the 1980s saying, once we get computers networked, there's going to be a lot of money in search. Nobody seems to have said that. There's an asymmetry between how obvious innovation is looking backwards and how non-obvious it is looking forwards, how very difficult it is to predict. Innovation, And actually, if anything, the book forced me to become ever more skeptical about people who say they can forecast the future of technology.
0: Do you have an explanation for why it seems so obvious in retrospect and not obvious in prospect? Well, uh, I call in aid uh, a Californian by the name
1: of Roy Amara, who was a uh, computer scientist in Silicon Valley in the early 60s. Uh, who made this wonderfully perceptive remark that we underestimate the impact of a new technology in the long run but we overestimate it in the short run we expect too much of an innovation in the first 15 years but then we're blown away in the second 15 years you know think of the internet it's you know between 1985 and 2000 it's it's kind of a weird place that's not really helpful for anybody between 2000 and 2015 it changes the world so it's non-linear the adoption and i think that does help to explain how we can't forecast it because we you know the, the these these sudden explosions into significance take us by surprise but i think it's worse than that i just think that there's a real there's, there's a rather wonderful book written by a former um governor of the uk central bank Mervyn king and a Professor named John Kay recently called radical uncertainty, and they make the argument that there is a ton of stuff that we pretend is only uncertain because we haven't measured it properly, we haven't modeled it properly, etc. You know, the entire financial risk world is based on this assumption that you know, if only we could just do a little bit better modeling, we can predict what's going to happen next. Weather forecasting beyond a week is based on this. Uh, A lot of epidemiology, it turns out, as we learned in the last three years, is based on this. And actually, they're saying, no, we ought to be more humble. We ought occasionally to say there are things that are simply never going to be predictable or forecastable. Complex dynamic systems with uh, a lot of confusion between cause and effect, with a lot of nonlinear dynamic effects and so on, like epidemics, like economies, like climates are never going to be as easy to forecast, uh, you know, however big a computer we put to the task. So I think in the end, innovation's unpredictability looking forward is a form of radical uncertainty. If you like, the flap of a butterfly's wing in Palo Alto can lead to a nuclear war in Taiwan in 30 years time or something like that through a sort of chain of events that you can't predict. And yet, as I say, when you look backwards, you think, well, it was pretty obvious that was going to happen.
0: Yeah, you can't unsee all of the reasons why currently useful things are currently useful and successful. That's a very nice way of putting it. What are some co- other common features that you document of innovation? You mentioned simultaneous invention or simultaneous innovation, and you kind of document a series of traits that innovation seems to have in common.
1: Yeah, well, I talk about serendipity. The fact that a lot of innovators start in one direction and end up going in another—they uh, think they're inventing something to help in medicine. It turns out they're helping; they're inventing something that helps in agriculture or whatever it might be. You know, uh, the story of Art Fry, the guy who developed the Post-it note at um, 3M, um, or Stephanie Kollek, the person who found Kevlar bulletproof vests, basically at DuPont, are very nice case histories of people who. Um, stumbled on something that was that had a completely different use from what they were expecting, uh, but re, but were smart enough to pivot and to realize that actually this was a, a a really good technology in a different direction. So I think that's one feature. I talk a bit about the difference between invention and innovation, um, which I think is quite an important distinction. And my version of that difference, is that invention is coming up with a prototype of something. Innovation is making that prototype into an affordable, reliable and available product or service that can actually be useful to people. And it's much harder work than people think. We put up statues to the people who come up with the prototypes. We don't do that for the people who do the hard grind of innovation from that prototype. And perhaps we should. To give you an ancient example, Thomas Edison was an innovator, not really an inventor. He just worked out how to make these things manufacturable, affordable, and so on. Uh, Jeff Bezos is a more contemporary example of the same phenomenon. Nobody would uh, pretend that Jeff Bezos is an inventor, but he sure is an innovator in the sense that he, more than anyone else, has brought e-commerce into practical use for most of us. That's not easy. So part of my aim in the book, after a while, after I began to look at these stories, was to redress the balance of praise, if you like, between the inventor and the innovator, to, to recognize the significance of these people who make things usable for all of us.
0: That seemed to come through pretty strongly in the chapter, the section on the history of flight. It occurred to me reading it that the Wright brothers are very famous for this first flight, but you don't really hear anything about them subsequently in the development of flight as a usable industry. Can you say something about that and why the contrast between their early prominence and later obscurity in the world of manned flight? Well, one of them died quite young in a plane crash, so that might explain a bit of that, but still.
1: (laughs) Um, Sorry, that shouldn't, that's no laughing matter. The story of the Wright Brothers is a really neat story of, it illustrates a lot of the themes in my book because there's this wonderful coincidence, here we go, simultaneous invention again, that in December 1903, Samuel Langley, a brilliant astrophysicist, head of the Smithsonian Institution, develops a powered airplane and launches it off the top of a houseboat on the Potomac River and it splashes into the water after 20 meters. Um, It's a complete flop despite having had 20,000 pounds of government money spent on it and despite him being the cleverest man in Washington by a mile. And that's the problem. He was so clever that he didn't think he needed to consult anyone. And he did the whole thing in secret, lest someone steal the idea. And he got it all wrong. What the Wright brothers, meanwhile, did 10 days later on an island off North Carolina with no press present and no publicity of any kind was the culmination of years and years of experiments and pilfering of ideas from other people. Now, I mean that as a compliment. I'm not trying to uh, sort of do them down here. They networked through a guy called Octave Chanute in Chicago, mainly. They called upon people all over the world, in Australia, in France, in Germany, et cetera, who were thinking about flight and who were doing experiments with gliders, with box kites, with wind tunnels, who were studying birds, et cetera. And then they did a whole a ton of experiments. Tinkering experiments with gliders for years before they even tried putting an engine on one of these things. So they had done right what Langley had done wrong. They knew it was a matter of collective intelligence, not individual intelligence. They didn't have a degree between them. They weren't under any illusions that they were the cleverest people in the room. Um, And of course, they didn't get recognized for this. You know, for years, the mainstream US press went around saying, look, if two bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio, had invented powered flight? Don't you think we would know about it? Oh, I didn't (laughs) know that. Yeah. No, there's there's some very snooty articles saying, you know, stop writing into us about these guys. They can't have done it. Well, why not go and ask them? You know,
0: Dayton's not that far away from New York. (laughs) How was it that they eventually did get widespread credit?
1: Well one or two journalists particularly local ones in Ohio did start going and saw them flying around in circles in the air by then you know they were going, they were staying up for an hour and things like that and people said hang on a minute they have actually cracked the problem but you you asked about why they then fade from the history they then made the mistake which a lot of other innovators make Marconi did this Samuel Morse did this the inventor of the telegraph which is they spent the next 10 years Furiously litigating their patents, furiously trying to defend their intellectual property uh, on what they'd invented. And they're wasting their time in court because it costs a fortune, takes them away from the laboratory bench or whatever the equivalent is. And frankly, you they're overclaiming because, as I say, they'd drawn upon other people's ideas in putting together their own. Uh, th- this was another theme that came out of my stories: was Intellectual property is overrated. Its role as an incentive to innovators is very faint indeed. The harder you look, the harder it is to find really good evidence that people wouldn't invent things if they couldn't get patents, with the possible exception of the drugs industry. But even there, I'm not convinced myself. Certainly not you know, patents of the length and restrictiveness that, that we issue today. Um, So I came out as a great skeptic against intellectual property. So I think that's one answer to how they got ignored. Another answer is that burned by the Langley experience, the US government wouldn't engage with the rights. They were frantic to get the Department of Defense or whatever it was called, the War Department, I think it was called in those days, to buy their airplanes and employ them uh, in a military way. Uh, And they just couldn't get taken seriously. These people said, oh, these are just fraudsters like Langley. You know, we're going to waste our money. Um, uh, And eventually, they get the French government interested. But by then, their French rivals had caught up and were also developing and inventing airplanes that were just as good, if not better, in some ways. So they're a little unlucky in that they do all the hard work and then other people get a lot of the credit. But I don't think they died in poverty or anything. I don't think that the, the Smithsonian Institution, interestingly, in Washington, refused to recognize their primacy and kept an exhibit showing Langley as having invented the airplane on show till something like 1950 or something uh, grotesque. Wow! And eventually had to be persuaded that, no, this really wasn't telling history the right way. So, you know, they do suffer from being outsiders and not posh enough and not educated elite and that kind of thing, which is another theme that I like to look into in the story of
0: innovation. So that they're they're outsiders, they're not from the right prep schools, but also they got too deep into litigation and intellectual property thickets. So one of the problems with intellectual property that you talk about, and, and read about in in other works is that it's it's pretty easy to visualize and think about how it could incentivize innovation but it's maybe a little bit more invisible to see how it thwarts innovation and stops the innovate innovative process because you constantly are now needing permission and there's any number of developments that never were patented or copyrighted or anything like that if the development of language was however long ago language was developing 100,000 years ago was was bound down by intellectual property rules I, I don't think it would have gotten very far
1: right i mean if i if i had copyrighted the phrase when ideas have sex which i possibly could have done i don't think it would have increased the value of the phrase nor would it have led to any great uh, incentive for other people to do the same. You wouldn't have been able to use it as the title of your podcast. But
0: you could have sued me. I mean, there's a plus. I could have sued you,
1: yeah. Um, big deal. You know, you would have paid me some small sum and we'd have got very angry with each other. When I uh, I served in the House of Lords in the UK Parliament for a while, and when I first arrived there, they were in the middle of passing a bill which was lengthening copyright to 70 years after the death of the author. And I stood up and said, hang on, why are we doing this? And there was a lot of mumbo-jumbo. It's necessary for international relations and blah, blah, blah. And, but in the end, the reason was because we've been lobbied by the Disney Corporation, which is worried about losing the copyright on Mickey Mouse. Um, and, it's right, it's running out soon, isn't it? Exactly. And, and, you know, I write books. They're copyrighted. That's the way the world works. I kind of don't particularly feel very proud of the fact they are copyrighted, given my views, but I'm not quite sure how to change the world by myself, as it were. But why should my grandchildren make money out of them in 70 years after I'm dead? Or even my great-grandchildren,
0: you know, let them get a job instead. It reminds me of David Friedman, Milton Friedman's son, has a quote that I always liked, especially as an intellectual. When you're young, you worry that everyone's going to steal your ideas. And when you're old, you're worried that no one will.
1: Huh, that's
0: beautiful. I can steal that one. Yeah, would you? You can you can appropriate that one. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll attribute it, of course. Attribute but, it yeah. to me. Attribute it to me, though. Definitely. Clearly.
1: <laughs> can you? Say just, a little- sorry, just back to the point you were making about how they thwart innovation. I think the strongest piece of evidence is the 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 rash of innovation that follows the expiry of a key patent, and you find this again and again. We had a recent example with the expiry of a key patent on three D printing. That led to a a surge of innovation. Um, The expiry of the patent on corrugated iron in the mid 19th century uh, led to a flourishing of corrugated iron in lots of different uses and a whole different, you know, different ways of making it and so on. So, um, those are just a couple of examples of where,
0: you know, once the patent expires, you get more innovation, not less. And for reasons that I think are probably just historical accident, there are entire industries that are creative industries that somehow just never got their act together enough to lobby congress or the house of lords or whatever um i think the fashion industry stand up comedy dance my my fiance is a dance oh. instructor and she she's right. always talking about you know there's a lot of informal etiquette among dance instructors about using each other's moves and stuff but it's it's not under intellectual property restaurants restaurants food. but curiously also the internet, that is to say,
1: a lot of what happens in the world of e-commerce, et cetera, is very hard to patent in any, or to make money from patenting in any meaningful way. Because people will, the innovation is happening so fast that, that the thing you've patented is long out of date, but very quickly. There was a big row when Amazon tried to patent the one-click purchasing button. And, you know, they were kind of hounded out of polite society in the, the, the digital world uh, for doing that for a while on the grounds that that's not how we behave in this industry. You know, so it's it, you're quite right that there are very innovative industries that don't go near intellectual property, or at least very little. But, but, you know, the etiquette point you make is right. Informal, yes, you know, you can be
0: ostracized for not giving credit, you know, uh, it's very strong kids? in stand-up comedy is that right yeah stand-up comics are brutal with each other if you get a reputation for stealing jokes of I, course because there's a fairly limited supply of good jokes yeah and and I think you know there's there's also jokes that are so old and they get they get reused and dressed up I think probably it's not as strong if you're if you're repurposing jokes that are 100 years old but if you're lifting material from like currently active comics I mean I saw uh, an unpleasant to watch video of Joe Rogan years ago in the audience of another stand-up who had a reputation for stealing jokes. And Joe Rogan eventually gets up on stage and it just turns into a heated comedy battle between the two of them calling each other out. And all the comics were so thrilled that Joe Rogan embarrassed this guy because he was routinely stealing stealing jokes. I don't remember the name of him and I probably shouldn't try to guess in case I get it wrong. That sounds fascinating. So one of my favorite chunks of this book, my favorite short story, probably that stands alone so nicely is the section on the development of the computer. It's it's such an inherently interesting story and you write it so well and you you kind of start with a plausible candidate for who's the inventor of the computer and then you just kind of in stages keep pushing it back. Well, there's this other prior claim that also deserves to be mentioned and there's another prior claim and by the end of it it's shocking to see you go into, you know, the 1800s with people who, you know, maybe don't have a realistic claim to having invented the computer, but have very strong claims to serious contributions to its development. A wonderful chapter. Can you say something about that? And how how is it that the development of the computer goes back that far and possibly further? Yeah. And, and again, just to pay
1: tribute to intellectual predecessors, uh, Walter Isaacson's book on the development of the computer was fantastically influential for me there and it helped me Track down a lot of these these stories. So kudos to him. You know the question is what is a computer? Because I mean you have calculating machines in the 1920s developed by IBM and things like that. But by the 1950s you've got programmable computers which are universal machines. That is to say you can program them to do pretty well any uh, logical task. Uh, where does that idea come from? Well, Alan Turing deserves a lot of credit with his 1937 paper on subject. Yeah, but where does the machine come from? Well, uh, there's a sort of programmable thing uh, called, I think it's called the Mark II at Harvard in during, in the early years of World War II, uh, uh, that is calculating the trajectory of artillery shells, and that does a great job of being programmable. But it's a mechanical machine. It's not an electronic machine. Um, meanwhile, in Philadelphia, there's a machine called the ENIAC, which is... Electronic, but it's not programmable. So you can see we've got the sort of ingredients together. And then who puts these two together? Who knows of the existence of both the Harvard machine and the Philadelphia machine? Because it's all secret, remember, at the time. And that's Johnny von Neumann. And he's the one who, in a sense, philosophizes this and decides what the architecture of a computer should look like in principle. So we call them von Neumann machines these days. So we've already got about four or five candidates here for the people who invented the thing. And we haven't touched on a guy in Iowa called Vincent Atanasoff. I, couldn't, I can never remember his name. That's why I quickly had to look it up. Because he had a blinding insight in a roadside bar in 1937, as I, as I wrote, about a key part of this. And he ended up suing other people because he said they'd all stolen his idea without recognition, which was partly true. But then hang on, let's jump to Germany. Again, in this kind of annus mirabilis, this amazing year of 1937, where a lot of this key stuff starts, uh, you know, you find there's a guy in germ- Germany who really does actually uh, see a lot of this stuff and get it sort of uh, right. And had he been at peace with the West uh, over the next few years, undoubtedly would have contributed, etc. cetera. So in the end, I don't think you can give the credit for inventing the computer to anybody. And that's despite it being something that happened in recorded history. It's not as if it's lost in the mists of time. You know, This was only less than 100 years ago, and it was very well documented what's going on. And, and yet, you know, even for an invention as important as that, we can't really say on this Thursday there were no computers in the world. By Friday, there were computers in the world, and it was at place X, and it was person Y who was doing it. It just doesn't make sense to tell us the history of the computer in that way. And I think that's quite a a useful parable for a lot of innovations. They are surprisingly collective.
0: And it's very stark with the story of the computer because of what you just said, because it's a modern development that happened almost by definition in a, in a more technologically advanced age where everything is documented very well and it's still very difficult. But that phenomenon seems to hold for just about everything, every story you tell. You can define more or less arbitrarily what the moment of invention will look like. And by that definition, pinpoint like a developer sometimes but it's always worth asking the question, well, why is this specific criteria the thing we want to celebrate? That this is also okay. true of the of the the telephone. So you you talk about, you know, the difficulties of the, the different inventors of the telephone getting credit. And Antonio Meucci was someone whose name you don't often hear, who might have been the first one. And to you give some explanations for why he doesn't get credit. Uh, I have to quote Tony Soprano because he says he didn't get credit. He was robbed because he was an Italian, but he had his own perspective there. <laughs> That's probably true. <laughs> I knew that name only because I'm a big fan of The Sopranos. And and there's a scene where he's chastising his son for crediting uh, Alexander Graham Bell with inventing the telephone.
1: Oh, really? Oh, mm-hmm. gosh, that's great. I've I missed that scene. I, 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 that, that's lovely. But yeah, no, exactly. This this guy, uh, this Italian guy, he was kind of ahead of his time. That's part of the problem. I mean, you know, if you really want to talk about people being ahead of their time, Lord Byron's daughter, Ada Lovelace, and yes. um, the guy she worked with in 19th century Britain, kind of invent the concept of the computer, uh, you know, the idea of a computer program. But they haven't got the technology to make it. Um, in any practical sense, um, so you can be ahead of your time. Leonardo, of course, is famously ahead of his time on various machineries and so on. At, at the same time, there was another phenomenon that, that intrigued me, which was to set out and find really good examples of things that should have been invented a heck of a lot earlier than they were. Now, why not invent wheeled suitcases in the 14th century? And actually, I did. I found a, an image from the 14th century of somebody wheeling a bag along. So, so they yeah, did. Yeah, because it's quite low tech. Exactly. The wheeled suitcase comes along in the 1970s, 1980s for the first time. That seems amazingly late. Well, actually, when you look into it, and, and there was a guy, by the way, who went to Samsonite and says, look, I want to put wheels on suitcases. Will you pay me for the idea? Here's my prototype. And they told him to get lost. But when you look, when you think about it, airports were smaller, stage, uh, train stations were smaller, you could carry your bags a short way. There were far more porters around. They had carts with wheels on. Why put the wheels on the suitcase? The wheels are going to be heavy in those days. They're going to be made of iron and things like that. So actually, it probably doesn't make sense to put wheels on suitcases till the 1980s. And in then, then I went back and I found right back to the 1920s. I found people trying to sell wheel suitcases in the 1920s. It just didn't catch on. Uh, because it probably wasn't as practical in those days. So in the end, I struggled to find good examples of technologies that we jolly well should have invented hundred years before we did. Um, there's a there's a there's a Finnish axe for chopping wood that's asymmetrical, called the lever axe, uh, which both splits and chops the wood uh, while you're at it, sort of thing. You know, you, you, it sort of does the whole thing in one motion. It's a brilliant device.
0: You probably could
1: have invented that any time since the Stone Age. But, you know, there aren't that many examples.
0: Because even if the technology is there, you're saying that there are other reasons why the idea just might not be practical or ripe until other pieces are in place. It's not like the wheeled suitcase does anything that we were completely ignorant to do, you know, 200 years ago. But you need, among other things, you know, large airports with smooth floors. uh, Yes. Probably other things.
1: Exactly that. And, and you know, there's no point in inventing the search engine until you've invented the internet. There's no point in inventing computers till you've invented uh, electronics, uh, you know, and so on. Uh, there is a, there's a degree of interdependence among these technologies.
0: As a nerd myself, and I play Dungeons and Dragons, I've often wondered why something like uh, advanced dice tabletop role-playing wasn't invented until the 1970s. There's nothing technologically that Couldn't have been invented by the ancient Greeks, but maybe they just had no interest in that sort of thing. I mean, there's kind of like war gaming and things like that. But as far as I know, really advanced and structured narrative rules-based make-believe just doesn't become a thing until then. And then it really takes off. Okay, here's a a weird
1: thought. Quite a common archaeological find in the part of the world I live in, the north of England, is a thing called a cup and ring marked rock which is a 4,000-year-old human mark on rocks consisting of little cups and little rings carved into the into rocks, into you know, natural rocks on the ground. And there's a huge literature of people trying to, A, map these things, B, explain them. Are they territorial boundary markers for tribes? Are they places for sacrificing virgins and collecting the blood in the cups? You know, there's some wonderful weird explanations out there which all end up saying they're to do with ritual. And I just wonder if they weren't board games. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, people have always enjoyed recreation. Can we backtrack and uh, take, a, take a detour briefly? You, you had mentioned the intellectual property extension when you were in the House of Lords. Can you just say something about that? What's it like to be in the House of Lords? And, and for <laughs> an American audience, what, what is the House of Lords and how does it work? Exactly. Well, I served there for nine years. I retired at the end of last year because I, I didn't
1: want to devote the time necessary to it. It's mostly appointed, but uh, it used to be hereditary. And there's still a few hereditaries there, but they get elected by the other hereditaries that are, who are already there. That was how I got there. I happened to inherit a title from my father when he died. And they said, would you like to come and be one of us in the House of Lords? Uh, it's supposed to they're, they're supposed to be abolished, that way of getting into the House of Lords. But they not until they've made it more democratic and made it elected or something like that. They haven't got around to doing that. So I'm sorry, I'm getting into way too complicated constitutional I, I, stuff. No, I find it very interesting. The House of Commons is the the main dominant uh, feature of the UK Parliament. It, it uh, proposes all the laws. It has to pass all the laws. But it also has to pass bills through the House of Lords. That there is a convention that the House of Lords never blocks the Commons, but does revise the legislation. That is, that's its job. It knows it's not legitimate. There's 800 members. At its best, it's a gigantic think tank allowing the Commons to have a sort of second opinion on legislation. At its worst, it's a, a lot of people with, who like the sound of their own voice making speeches that aren't really very helpful. Does that summarize it quite well?
0: I think so. I, I'm curious if there's, because uh, I've heard you talk about it a little bit before. I, is it the kind of thing that a lot of the members are self-conscious about get, because it feels kind of pre, pre-modern pre or is there still a lot of pride in the in the membership?
1: I think there's still a lot of pride um, because it is still a working part of the
0: constitution. You know,
1: uh, it does actually have to uh, debate legislation and and so on. But it is also aware of the fact that it descends from, in direct line, the bunch of barons who ganged up on King John and forced him to sign Magna Carta. you know That's where the institution originated, the House of Lords. And so in that sense, it, it is a peculiarly British mixture of ancient tradition that still just works and has been made changed and changed and changed in such a way that it can still work. A bit like, in that sense, the monarchy, you know, as we just saw with the death of Queen Elizabeth, electing a, a president who half of you don't agree with as your head of state, as opposed to your head of government, is quite an uncomfortable position for a lot of Americans. Whereas if you happen to have a really brilliantly neutral, very hardworking working Uh, rather virtuous and essentially quite wise woman in the role uh, for 70 years. It's really quite a lucky, lucky break. We didn't have to worry about what her views were on anything. She would just preside in this, you know, she would just make sure that the prime minister
0: was not the head of the country. (laughs) She was everything else, but she wasn't the head of the country. Does that depend on the role being I don't know about wholly, but largely symbolic because, you, like, as you said, you don't actually have to worry about the positions. I mean, if if Elizabeth was forced to take positions on controversial contemporary issues, I think that would have that feeling would probably evaporate pretty quickly. Correct. And and there were, there were moments when uh,
1: she came close to being forced into taking a political decision. You know, when the governor general of Australia sacked the prime minister in her name, you know, these were two Australians having a dispute. But nonetheless, one of them was saying, "Well, I'm doing this on behalf of the monarch." You know, things like that. Uh-huh. You know, there were moments when it got tricky. Uh, you know, there's a big, there's a current debate in the UK about whether uh, King Charles will be as neutral as his mother was, because he was never very neutral as Prince of Wales. He expressed quite strong opinions on the environment, on architecture, uh, on social welfare, and on on other issues. And he said very clearly, uh, "Don't worry." I know the difference between being king and being prince. I am now gonna be neutral. Uh, So we're in good hands as far as we can tell. But anyway, my, my point was the British constitution, unlike the American one, is not written down. It's a series of conventions and traditions that gives it flexibility. We're able to change it organically as we go along. It's muddled its way to being a democracy that pretends it's a monarchy if you see what I mean. I do. That's kind of what we are. And we are a democracy. There's no, you know, there's no real power residing with the monarch. You know, she couldn't suddenly order the troops to close down parliament like King Charles I did. You know, they wouldn't obey. You know, it just wouldn't happen. So we are a democracy. And, and every year, the Queen used to come to parliament to, to declare each session open. And there's a little tradition where the her messenger goes along the corridor to the commons to summon the members of the House of Commons. And when he arrives, they slam the door in his face. And they do this every year, just to remind the monarch that the real power lies in the House of Commons. You know, Americans sometimes look at Britain and say, how quaint you're still a monarchy. Well, actually, we're a sort of democracy that pretends it's a monarchy and a monarchy that pretends it's a democracy and all this kind of stuff. And it it kind of works for now.
0: So back to this book. You wrote also The Rational Optimist and there's a lot of overlap between, you know, some of the topics in these two books and one of the themes of your writing is progress, technological, cultural progress. I'm curious if you could if you could be a random person, a random pre-modern person born before or after agriculture, what would you choose and why?
1: <laughs> it's a really good question because as you know, what agriculture did was make life less pleasant in some ways. People became more malnourished and they worked harder, et cetera, but they survive. You know, people, people say, oh, well, you know, it was a, it was much nicer being a hunter-gatherer before agriculture was invented because you had plenty of leisure time, you got a, a varied diet, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You didn't suffer from plagues and things like that. But actually, the reason you were better off was because there were fewer of you, because most of you die. You know, you were either killed by a charging lion, or you broke your leg and couldn't keep up in the hunt, and were left behind, or something like that. The thing about agriculture is it did allow, as it were, the weak and the sick to stay alive. And so it's a question of whether you want to be alive at all, which I probably wouldn't have been for very long if I was a hunter-gatherer, or whether I want to be healthy when I'm alive, which I'm more likely not to have been if I've been born in the time of agriculture. But would I like to, as me, go back and see the world before agriculture began? Yeah, I mean, do you know the story of see the Ice Man? They found in the nineteen nineties. He in, in, he was in the, the
0: one that he had his backpack and all his equipment, and they slowly, you know, figured out through bone chippings and stuff how he died. And yeah, but do you want to tell the story for the audience?
1: yeah no no that that's that's basically the story they they've they found a guy um lying in in some some ice and snow in the Austrian Alps who'd been buried there for the best part of five thousand years uh it turned out he died when he'd been shot by an arrow um the Austrians examined him never found the arrow but the the, the Italians did as soon as they looked because he was right on the Italian border and it wasn't clear whose country he was in to start with but what's so fascinating about him is that he had uh, you know, bearskin shoes and deer skin clothes, and a backpack, and and uh, made of five different types of wood, and a bow and arrows, and a bag for holding embers in to light a fire, and another bag for holding herbs in to deal with his wounds, and so on. You know, there was a there was a whole cornucopia of Stone Age technologies. Strictly speaking, he's not quite stone age. He had a copper axe. Uh, you know, we're right at the beginning of, of the metal ages, copper, not bronze age. That told us so much more than we knew from archaeology about what life was really like and how sophisticated it was technologically before agriculture, way before agriculture. Well, no, not quite before agriculture. There is farming. He's got some uh, farmed grain in his stomach, for example. Anyway, he's, he's just a fascinating guy.
0: Well, and when we talk about the agricultural revolution, it's probably easy to think that like in the year 12,000 BC, agriculture was invented. But this is a development that happens over thousands of years and on different continents. And so I'm sure there's primitive agriculture and tribes that engage in a a wee bit of agriculture for a while, occasionally, or seasonal agriculture. Exactly. yeah, I'm 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 asking in in part on behalf of a friend who has a very positive view of of hunter-gatherer life, and uh, and I very much relate with that that inclination. I, I think yeah. I've heard you talk about you're not necessarily an optimist by psychological disposition, but by uh, by study and and data, and, and it might be easy to have an attitude like I I relate with that. It's really easy when people talk pessimistically about the world and the state of the world politically environmentally whatever or just how you see social interactions going to feel the pull of that as things are yeah. falling apart and then to see a different picture in large scale uh, quantitative trends and things like that and do you do you feel a tension there in, in in yourself in in trends and data versus your your own psychological disposition Absolutely, but also not just my own psychological disposition. I can be as
1: pessimistic as anyone at three in the morning. Uh, but also, you know, what I'm reading uh, about. You know, the UK is going through a bit of a financial crisis at the moment. I can read that stuff and say, "Oh my God, we really are in a mess. And we're going to have, you know, the lights are going to go out this winter. Uh, the pension funds are going to go bust. You know, we're broke as a country, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And then I think to myself, "Well," hang on, we've got the lowest unemployment ever. Standards of living have never been higher. Uh, We're one of the freest and most successful countries in the world compared with, you know, many others. We've been through World War II and a bunch of other crises. (laughs) This isn't as bad as that. So I do have to sort of remind myself not to fall for for the gloom and doom all the time.
0: What would you say to critics of Progress that probably a standard list of things that the modern world seems to do worse at chronic health issues like diabetes things like that or lack of community i don't know if there's good data on that and i'm not sure if any of that's actually true but i'm sure you've heard these kinds of criticisms i think you've given a partial answer as far as well more of us are alive to experience these things
1: yeah just to take one very specific example though. I remember reviewing some books in the 1990s that were all about, extremely pessimistic about the impact this internet thing was going to have on human being. And they all said, uh, the problem is people are going to become solitary. People are going to disappear into their basements and their bedrooms uh, and play games with each other online and never talk to each other. And the social world will disappear. And there's a real epidemic of anti-social isolation coming as a result of the internet. Well, that turned out to be about 180 degrees wrong. In other words, yes, the internet did bring a problem. It's called social media and the pressures that come with it. And it comes from rampant social engagement to the exclusion of everything else and with its own problems, which it indeed has. And you know, I think social media is responsible for a huge part of the coarsening of the discourse today and the polarization of the way we talk about politics and other things and and maybe even the rise of authoritarian regimes and all that kind of thing so yes there have been problems coming out of the internet but they weren't the ones people expected necessarily there's a lot wrong with the modern world some of it's worse than it was 50 years ago but not a lot i mean would you really trade you know today's dentistry or medicine for what, what was available 50 years ago Uh, Would you really trade uh, the air pollution we have today with what they had in the 1950s? Uh, The amount of food available per head in the world, particularly if you are, say, in Africa or or Asia, is extraordinarily better. Malnutrition, uh, famine has disappeared largely as a cause of death. Um, Not malnutrition, but famine has disappeared. So I'm very keen on reminding people that... Yes, we can take for granted the improvements of the past and start to worry about the problems we've still got or that are getting worse. But don't let's do that so much that we then reject the opportunities for progress that got us here and that could get us to an even better place. Yeah, so the way I put it is I'm not a Panglossian. I'm not saying this world is perfect. I've never said that. I've said the very opposite that this world is a heck of a lot better than the world of a hundred years ago for the majority of people, but it's a veil of tears compared with what it could be in a hundred years' time for our grandchildren
0: and what about I think I was thinking more of the contrast between between pre agricultural and okay. and contemporary society I mean to be clear i i'm I'm much more on team modern. I would rather be right. born today or I'd rather be born tomorrow uh than 10,000 years ago. But I feel the pull of the attractiveness of, of a hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And I, I, I wonder if—I I think I'm getting this philosophical term right. Like, Are we living in the repugnant conclusion, the, the idea that we have increased population by a whole lot, but everyone's average happiness level is, is lower than it was when we had a very tiny population of hunter-gatherers where essentially only the popular jocks survived. You have to be very physically fit and very good at fitting in with your, with your tribe— and it doesn't seem surprising that a society full of popular jocks would be happier, but that maybe that's better, and that's more a moral question than a factual question. Like, what's yeah. the what's the frame of reference for how to judge the goodness yeah. of a society? And uh, I actually don't think that's true. I think this is a better society, but I I see the pull of that. I I don't know if I'm asking you a question or just asking you to react to that. I, I agree, it's it's an interesting one, and I don't I don't think I have a very in, intelligent answer to it. But
1: yes, you you're healthier. Probably in hunter-gatherer society, yes, you might be content, but are you really happy to do up, do away with all the potential experiences with, with the, you know, I mean, entertainment was watching another member of the tribe dance around a fire. You know, I, I'd quite like Netflix instead. There's a, there's a rather nice remark that Greg Easterbrook made, which is that even if people were happier in the old days, I'd rather be. Uh, healthy, well-fed, and unhappy than unhealthy, poorly fed, and happy. (laughs) Happiness isn't everything. Oh, and by the way, I thought when I came to write The Rational Optimist that I was going to have to write a whole chapter about how the one thing that hadn't progressed was happiness. Um, There was this thing called the Eastland Paradox that as people got richer, they got less happy. Um, It was well-established in the literature. Everybody believed it. It turned out to be nonsense. When people did bigger surveys with better data, they found the opposite, that they, that as people got richer, both within lifetimes and comparisons across countries or comparisons within countries, that richer people were always happier people than um, poorer people, on average. You can still be very rich and very unhappy, but that cheers up other people because they hate you being happy when you're rich, you know, so um, <laughs> that way. <laughs> Well, so did, uh, no, that, that was a real eye opener to me. Was I didn't even have to concede that happiness had got worse. It hasn't.
0: Was the worse. was the more contemporary finding that my impression is that when you talk when you talk about wealth and richness and poverty on large scales, uh, you're not talking as like a modern Westerner might think of the difference between being an ordinary Westerner and being Jeff Bezos. You're talking about the difference between Being a Bangladeshi peasant and being an ordinary resident of London—that's the difference between rich and poor. And I think
1: think you're right that at some sense, at some point, happiness probably maxes out. You know, going from being worth 100 million to being worth 200 million probably doesn't improve your happiness very much, if at all. Uh, But going from five dollars a day to fifty dollars a day probably massively improves your your um, Happiness, so there is a logarithmic nature to the curve. I'm guessing, but I don't think the data is good enough to pull that out much yet.
0: Yeah, that sounds right. What, what I had recall the 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 kind of pithy poll quote that I recalled reading was that being very rich in like the Western sense of rich doesn't really make you happy, but being very poor does make you miserable. So that yeah. once once you hit kind of a, a, a level of like upper middle class or something, that the returns start diminishing in in upper middle class in the modern industrial west the returns start to diminish a little bit but you know right. being poor will I mean, reliably nobody,
1: make you like, more miserable nobody would describe harry and megan as particularly happy i think you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> what uh, speaking of innovation in this book what's your favorite science fiction film uh in general or something that might illustrate uh, an innovative spirit Oh, that's a really good question. I know I'm going to give you the wrong answer, but the one that's jumped into my
1: mind is 2001: A Space Odyssey. It's such a clever film.
0: And no, that's the right cool. answer because that's my favorite film of all time. Good. So that was <laughs> the ra- that was the right answer. You are <laughs> you are correct. Yeah. No, that's great. And I, I I it's some people think of it as a as a downer because the th- the most memorable part is maybe Hal, and that's the negative part. But overall, it's such an optimistic movie. Well, and also. I read an article about this. Hal
1: was 50 years old three years ago, when you oh. think about it. You know, the film came out in 1969, and he still hasn't come true. You know, um, yeah. a malevolent AI is still being talked about, but we were talking about it 50 years ago and worrying about it then. So that kind of makes my point that um, actually uh, we're probably over-worrying about some problems.
0: Do you have anything to say about uh, concerns with AI alignment and how that's become much more mainstream to talk about and think about? I mean, it used to be a relatively niche concern in the rationalist community with people like Eliezer Yudkowsky uh, and Nick Bostrom opining about this a lot. But it seems to be a more mainstream concern, and now there uh, there's some popular AI generated uh, image generation technology that's been that's been progressing. To some people, frighteningly fast. I just think it's really cool, but I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that? I'm mostly optimistic about it. I, I took part in a big sort of uh, inquiry into
1: AI when I was in Parliament, and uh, I, I mostly ended up reinforcing my optimism. um On the whole, I see AI augmenting and assisting human beings rather than uh, coming a- against them. Yeah, I've read Nick Bostrom and other people, and it's not impossible that they're right that this is dystopian. But I, on the whole, um i'm pretty relaxed about it
0: i'm going to ask you the question i i referenced at the beginning of the show what would be your recommendation for a good companion book to how innovation works
1: well either steve pinker's enlightenment now which is a wonderful book or there's a book by joe henrik whose title i'm going to struggle to remember but the weirdest people in the world yes exactly that yeah that's what's called yeah lovely book and and Uh, He's such a good thinker and very influential on me.
0: I'll include both of those uh, in the show notes section. Fantastic. Are you working on any new projects at the moment? Anything we have to look forward Uh, to?
1: Well, as you know, I wrote this book um, uh, about where the virus came from. Yes, um, viral. And that's been taking up most of my time in the last couple of years, that argument. and, And it's not finished yet. We need to find out more about, you know, I can't believe how little interest much of the world has in finding out why 20 million people died. And we need to know where this virus came from. It doesn't seem to have come out of wildlife. If it was, we'd have found infected animals by now. I mean, it, it originated in bats, that's true, but but it didn't come via the market. Or it might have done, but we don't know for sure. It might have come through a laboratory route. So that's been a big part of, of my life. I am thinking about another book on another topic, but I'm not going to tell you about it because it might not come to, to life.
0: Fair enough. So yeah, so vi- viral is, I haven't read it yet, but it's kind of like a mystery novel, synthesizing the, the best knowledge we have so far about the origins of it. I, yeah, my understanding yes. is you, you don't come to a definite conclusion. You're, you're just trying It's to not sit. a novel. It's yeah. not a
1: novel, but it, in, in the sense that it's like a detective story, yes. Yes. And, you know, we end up in the book with a chapter saying, here's the best evidence that it came out of the market. Uh, and I find that chapter quite convincing when I reread it. And then another chapter, like we've handed the microphone to a lawyer, but, you know, addressing a jury um, here's the best evidence that it came out of a laboratory. And I find that chapter quite convincing when I read it again. Uh, and I basically wrote the first draft of both chapters. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's for me, that's that's how science should be. You know, you, you open up to all sources of evidence and try to um, uh, look at the evidence wherever it takes you. And I'm pretty disappointed with the traditional scientific institutions for their failure to debate this issue properly.
0: Do you think it's because it's controversial or politicized to take a take a stance on it one way or the other, or is it something else? There's a bit of that.
1: They don't want to be seen to vindicate Trump. Um, they likewise don't want to be seen to annoy China because a lot of uh, um, scientific uh, research gets funded or helped through China. But there's also a degree of how dare you have the impertinence to question what we do in our laboratories and that i find is not a very attractive uh, approach
0: i was curious if this is this had come up reading how innovation works it strikes me that it's would be so well suited as a documentary or like a docu series on netflix or something is that something you've you've ever pursued or you know each chapter would be such a nice little episode and and i don't know i could just see so much interest in something like that yeah, I've, I've
1: flirted with t- TV producers or filmmakers for various of my books. There was a, you know, there was a pilot made for Rational Optimist. It was turned down by the channel because I was a white male, apparently. You know, that's what I was told, <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. You know, I understand. You are, that. I can confirm. <laughs> the, a lot of, Filmmakers were interested in viral, but nothing has got off the ground. And likewise, uh, I think you're right. It would be wonderful to make a series about how innovation works. I'm not a natural filmmaker. I don't know the world. I don't know how to do it. I'm probably no good at writing scripts of films. Um, but of course, I'd love to see someone do it um, with one of these
0: books, yes. But you are a natural narrator, and your voice would be perfect for a documentary. That's Just very to... nice of you to <laughs> say. So where can people find you if they want to follow you and your work? Um, I have a,
1: a website called mattridley.co.uk. That's all one word, Matt Ridley. But I
0: also have, uh, I'm active on Twitter, Matt W. Ridley is my handle there. Wonderful. And I will include those links on the show notes as well. My guest today has been Matt Ridley and his book once again is How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom. Matt, thank you for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Chris, I've really
1: enjoyed the conversation and thank you very much for, for inviting me.
0: Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.